Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the BC Business Podcast. I'm Nick Rockle, Editor-in-Chief of BC Business Magazine. Ryan Berlin calls himself Lead Geek at Rennie Intelligence. He doesn't disappoint, and I mean that as a compliment. Director of Intelligence and Senior Economist with the Division of Real Estate Marketing firm Rennie, Berlin is one of four analysts tasked with offering a thoughtful take on the Metro Vancouver housing market. We chatted about how BC's economy is faring as the province digs out from COVID-19, why it's tougher to boost housing supply than to increase demand, and where Vancouver home prices could be headed post-pandemic. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Nick. So to get started, what do you do uh, on a daily basis at Rennie Intelligence? What do I do? So in, so in some ways, I'm kind of the lead geek uh, on, the, on the Rennie Intelligence team. Uh, my business card says Director of Intelligence and Senior Economist. Day-to-day, I'm one of four analysts on the team um, that, you know, as a, as a group, we, we spend almost all of our time trying to unravel the things that are impacting our market um, and providing evidence-based information to our clients. So that's developers uh, who, are, who are building new homes. Um, and then it's also, you know, the everyday person who's buying and selling or who owns a home in this market. And we do that sort of in two ways. One, we do produce material, our research and, and, and publish insights that is for public consumption. Um, and then we also have, we have a brokerage with about 180 agents as well. So um, we work as an intelligence team directly with them as well. All right, thanks. And you just released the, the spring 2021 edition of the Rennie Landscape, which is a biannual report that tracks demographic and economic indicators influencing the housing market in Metro Vancouver. So let's start with the economy. More than a year into what you've dubbed the, the Great Suppression, what kind of shape are we in jobs-wise and, and in other ways? Yeah, I mean, man, we, we have been through the ringer uh, for sure over the past year. Um, and, and we're certainly not through it. Um, you know, clearly many people, businesses are still suffering. And I think all of us, to a, a greater or lesser extent, um, you know, whether we actually lost somebody to COVID or we lost a job or we're forced to work from home um, or we just haven't been able to sort of engage in that um, the, 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 it, with other human beings, let's put it that way, in the, in the ways that we're used to and that we want to, we're all still being impacted by this. But I think when we look sort of big picture from an economic perspective and from an employment perspective, we're actually uh, on the whole not doing too bad, actually. Um, and I'm sure we'll cover, you know, we'll, we'll go in depth as this conversation sort of progresses. But um, the most recent jobs data that came in for uh, March, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, showed that in Metro Vancouver, uh, the total number of jobs in this region is now just slightly above uh, the peak that we had achieved right before the pandemic, before we got we got smashed and lost a couple couple hundred thousand jobs in this region. So that's you know that's um, I didn't actually see much reported on this topic, but I think it's a it's a it's a good milestone to reach to say hey you know we're back um, at least from a jobs perspective, and BC as a whole has actually recovered all of its jobs lost plus added five percent. So the West, you know, the West Coast is doing, the labor market has been fairly resilient um, and 
nationally, um, the country has recouped about 90% of all jobs lost. So there's a ways to go there nationally, mostly in Ontario or Quebec. But we were initially looking at a three, uh, 3 million uh, job deficit that was created, this crater in employment in the first few months of the pandemic. And it's now down to under 300,000. So um, it's uh, probably from here on in, it's it's two steps forward, one step back, because we have new restrictions coming in. We have to deal with the variant and, and the vaccine certainly hasn't, um, the, the rollout uh, has a ways to go. But um, we're, we're finally able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Yeah. But looking back, how did the kinds of job losses that we experienced during the pandemic uh help protect the, the housing market in BC from the, the worst effects of the, of COVID. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, there was, I mean, we can all remember uh, probably how we felt um, back in, in March when we were told to stay home and <laughs> not see anyone. Um, and there was just, there was, there was so much uncertainty at that point, And there were a lot of dire predictions made for the economy and for the housing market to be sure. Um, ultimately what happened was, uh, two things. I think that that sort of, um, you know, yeah, as, as you say, you know, shielded the, the ownership segment of the housing market from the very worst of, um, you know, typical recessionary, uh, consequences. Uh, one was that a mortgage deferral program was put into place. So for the first time ever where, you know, all the big banks, uh, and other financial institutions that land. Um, agreed to give homeowners a reprieve on their mortgage payments for up to six months. And so that, you know, provided some immediate cash for the households most in need who were owners. But when you actually look at the segment of the economy that was hurt the most by the Great Suppression, um, and that, that's a term that we, we came up with because it's, it's a little bit cute. It, you know, plays off the Great Depression uh, from the 1930s and the Great Recession from, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, but suppression because what we did was we said, you know, we didn't have these big imbalances in our economy going into this. Um, this was not a. This is not a typical recession. This is a. Uh, you know, the the genesis of this is a health crisis. So we came in and said, hey, we need to shut down certain parts of our economy, and then that had a very specific consequence for workers. So it was mostly um, workers in retail and hospitality. Uh, that were impacted. And then within that group, it was young people and part-time workers. And so, you know, given that archetype for somebody who lost their job, um, particularly in the early days of the recession, um, it's just not synonymous with the uh, profile of a typical homeowner or a home buyer. So, I mean, and that's where we saw, we actually saw some, um, you know, I would say more traditional impacts on the rental market where we saw rents rise more slowly over the past year and we saw vacancy rates rise. And, and that sort of speaks to that demographic that was impacted. Yeah. And then uh, I noticed too in your report that you, um, you point out that the official unemployment rate is really just one metric when you think about the toll that COVID has taken on, on workers in BC. And when you, yeah. when you bring in some of these other indicators, what's, uh, what are we seeing there? What kind of picture does it, does it paint? Yeah, I know. You know, in a, <laughs> I think in a more stable economy, the unemployment rate is a really good measure for how well the, you know, the labor market is performing. So generally speaking, you know, if the economy is, if we're not facing shocks like COVID or, um, you know, um, 
you know, something external that, that, that would generate a recession or a dramatic change in economic conditions, then, you know, what we generally see is that a, you know, a lower unemployment rate means more people are working. It generally means that, that wages are rising at sort of a, um, I don't want to say an acceptable level, but at a, a level that sort of makes workers better off. Um, and, and the opposite is true, too, where the unemployment rate rises. It says, hey, something's wrong. There are fewer people working. Wages will stop rising. Um, so it's hard to read the unemployment rate currently. Going into the uh, pandemic last at the beginning of last year, our, regionally, our unemployment rate was about 4.5%, which is just about as low as you can go. You're never going to get to a 0% unemployment rate. Um, and so we had a well-functioning economy here regionally. Um, and then it, the unemployment rate spiked to about 14%. Uh, within the first few months of the Great Suppression. Um, and that was much, much higher, almost double what we saw back in 08, 09. And for, like, anybody who's <laughs> listening to this and was around then remembers how um, how challenging those times were. I mean, that was a very significant economic downturn, but it was yeah. just totally trumped by yeah, wh- what we saw in the early days of the of the pandemic. So anyway... The unemployment rate now is sits around seven and a half percent regionally, uh, which is a, a market improvement, obviously from fourteen percent. Um, so we're getting back to where we were, but even though employment is back to where it was, unemployment the unemployment rate remains high. Unemployment, in terms of number of people who are looking for work but can't find a job, is still seventy one percent higher um, in this region than it was before the pandemic. Um, and the number of discouraged workers, uh, the data is for the province as a whole, for BC, um, it's at an all-time high. So discouraged workers are, are people who um, essentially drop out of the labor force. Um, so they stop looking for work because they've been unsuccessful. And so they don't actually get captured in the traditional unemployment rate metric, which is one of its flaws. So yeah. it's, it's like conditions are so bad that people just said, ah, I'm out. And, uh, and then they actually drop out of the unemployment rate calculation. So, you know, again, you know, we have a ways to go. It's certainly not back to quote unquote normal. I think we're, we're looking at another year, like into 2022 before we can actually say, Hey, we, we pushed through this thing. Yeah. And, and then uh, as we, uh, as we go into May, what's your take on the Vancouver housing market in Metro Vancouver? What are the conditions so, yeah, I mean, it, for I think for a lot of people, it, it harkens back to the uh, the days of 2016 and 2017. So, you know, four or five years ago, when when prices really ramped up, um, a different set of conditions there. I would argue that FOMO, the fear of missing out, was uh, <laughs> a more prominent factor then. But I think we're seeing it now as well. And so. Um, the issue that we have right now is is one of supply, and I don't mean to sound like uh, you know, someone who beats that drum all the time, but the issue is on the inventory side, if we look in the resale market, um, inventory is down across the board. So when I say across the board, I mean for all home types, detached, townhome, and condos, whether we compare it to uh, last year or we compare it to the past 10-year average. And, um, you know, again, in a typical recession, what you would see is you would see inventory rise because uh, you would see more broad-based job losses and you would see homeowners being more impacted than they have been in the past year without the support of a mortgage deferral program. Um, and the you would see people not be able to afford their 
their mortgage. And so they would list their home. You would see more listings. You'd see more sellers accept, willing to accept the lower price just to get out from underneath their mortgage. And then that sort of creates a, a, a downward spiral, if you will, where demand doesn't keep up and prices start to fall. But what we have now is, you know, people, people haven't been listing their homes, um, even though the unemployment rate spiked um, because of the mortgage deferral program, because of the extraordinary stimulus on the part of the Bank of Canada and various levels of government. People said, you know, I can, I'm going to stay put. And we all sort of viewed this as transitory. So, so the issue has been, how do we get through this together? And, but meanwhile, on the demand side of the market, um, you know, everybody is looking for their, the home that can accommodate them, not just as a place to live, but as a place to work <laughs> and a place to play because, um, you know, COVID has sort of changed the rules on all of us. So I think people's needs have come into focus more and with interest rates so low, with, you know, all of this <clears throat> volatile or volatility in, the, in, in stock markets, um, especially early on in the pandemic, I think particularly from that older cohort, um, there was sort of this, 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 this change in perspective that, hey, you know, maybe hard assets uh, from an investment perspective make more sense than having my money tied up in equities as I approach retirement. So yeah. from, all, all, from all sides, the demand, market, the demand side of the market has been supported and now prices are rising. I think the most recent data for March on a year-over-year basis showed detached prices up 21% year-over-year, whether you're looking at the benchmark definition or average prices, 21%. So that's clearly not sustainable. However, I will say that um, just going back to this analogy to 2016, 2017, detached home prices on a year-over-year basis back then actually reached a, a peak increase of over 40% which, you know, in hindsight is just mind-blowing. And I'm not saying we're, we're heading there, but um, the, what we're experiencing now in some ways is like a, a 2016 light version, but it's very challenging for buyers. Yeah, but it's interesting too that at the same time, we've got this, this crazy market, but there hasn't been this, this big surge in residential construction. And what, what do you think is going on there? And is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> So, you know, predictably, I think we just, we didn't see um, the investments in construction across the board and specifically residential throughout Canada, uh, particularly in the early days of the pandemic. And part of that just had to do with social distancing restrictions. Um, you just couldn't have the same number of people on a site working. So I think builders had to be uh, creative um, uh, when we're talking about sort of the larger development sites where you have, you have possibly hundreds of people uh, working on a site, tradespeople working on a site. It was staggering shifts. And, um, and there were a lot of logistical challenges there that just that slowed down construction. Um, and construction that hadn't started, just it, because there was so much uncertainty last year, um, we just didn't see um, some projects get off the ground. And then even, even at a more sort of uh, micro level, um, you know, there because of social distancing restrictions, um, more or less as the year went on, um, um, you, you just couldn't, if you wanted to renovate your home, add your home, build a new home, um, you know, it was just, it was more difficult. Um, so the interesting thing is now that we've turned the corner into 2021, the more recent data is showing for Metro Vancouver a real pickup. So I think what we've seen 
um, as a company working with uh, developer clients in the pre-sale market. So these are um, these are developers who are selling homes in multifamily towers uh, before construction starts. Um, a lot of them were ready to launch projects in 2020, not knowing COVID was on the horizon, obviously, and um, and 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 it didn't happen. And now that we have a bit more certainty, even though we're not out of the woods from an economic perspective yet, uh, or from a from a health perspective, I think there's a bit more certainty that we're on the right path, and we're now seeing, I think, a bit of catch up. So, um, super important uh, um, because. We can't really control the demand side of the market that much, right? We just people, we have lots of migration to this region. There's a lot of money in bank accounts right now. Um, interest rates are low and you can't really tax, you can't tax housing into affordability. You can't tax out demand. Um, so the supply, having the supply sort of um, be revitalized in the last couple months, at least, um, I would say it's a good thing. Yeah. And you mentioned interest rates. Uh, where do you think we're going there? And, and what would you like to see over the next couple of years? Yeah, good question. So I, uh, I take my guidance from the Bank of Canada, not that they get it right every time, that's for sure. But they're the ones that set policy, at least insofar as the, um, you know, the short-term so-called overnight target rate is concerned. I mean, every six weeks they get together a um, group of people around a table, literally, and they say, you know, what's, what's happening in our, in our economy and do we need to further stimulate activity or do we need to clamp down on it? And um, if it's the former, then they will lower interest rates or keep them low, keep that, that policy rate low. And if it's the, if it's the latter, um, then they will increase interest rates to, disincentivize borrowing and spending and to incentivize saving. Um, and so the bank has been, the bank lowered their target rate from 1.75% to 0.25%. So virtually zero, they consider it to be zero. They don't, they've said they don't, they have no intention of ever going below that. Um, so they made uh, variable rate mortgages extremely cheap, uh, home equity lines of credit, other lines of credits, anything uh, you're, you're, <laughs> The, the piddly interest rate you're getting on your savings account became even more piddly. Um, and, um, but then the other thing that they did was to embark on this so-called quantitative easing program where they're basically buying bonds. They're buying debt that governments are issuing as they willy-nilly spend. Um, and if they, didn't, if they didn't do that, um, interest rates in some of these longer-term bonds would have started to rise because so much debt was being issued by governments. Um, so in doing that, they really, you know, across what they might call the yield curve, like short-term to long-term interest rates, they pushed the whole thing down and they said, we're going to keep it there until the recovery is clear as day and we are through the worst of it. And they even said, it'll be 2023 before we increase the target overnight rate. Um, they just they met last week and they pulled that forward. They said the recovery is going better than expected. So they expect that short-term rate to possibly start to come up. Do I think this year? Probably not. But um, you know, early next year, I wouldn't be surprised if it starts moving up. And they pulled back now on their bond purchases, which means that longer-term interest rates are rising, which means mortgage rates are rising. So all of that is to say, um, you know, as we look ahead, we've already entered the phase where, if I just use the term generically, interest rates are rising. 
Um, and we, we we're past rock bottom and I don't believe that we're going to go back there barring anything unforeseen. So, um, you know, we, I think, I think home buyers need to be prepared based on what the banks, the, 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 the big banks in Canada, what their outlook is need to be prepared for a full percentage point increase in fixed rate mortgages, um, by the end of next year. Um, it's not going to impact everyone, but if you're a new home buyer, sort of, you know, weighing, um, you know, rising prices and do I wait till they stop rising versus interest rates are low, but they're rising, you know, it, it, it creates a, a tricky situation for sure. Yeah. And, and then at the same time, um, there's, there's all this, this government debt um, being being piled up, but then it's a shocking number. Canadians have saved $200 billion over the past year. So where, where does that leave us as we, as we try and get past this, uh, the, the pandemic and, it is shocking. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the federal government just presented their first budget in two years on Monday um, and estimated that uh, it, was a, it was a good news deficit for 2020 because it was only $340 billion instead of $380 billion. <laughs> so um, they are piling on the debt and they expect to add another $150 billion to debt this year uh, as well. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people get concerned about that. I think the word debt is very pejorative. It people recoil at it and we usually think of it in a household context, but I think it's important to acknowledge that government debt is different from household debt. I think for most people, whether you're a student or you're a young family trying to get your financial footing or you're heading into retirement, um, the elimination of debt is often a primary goal, like the total elimination of debt, pay off your mortgage, pay off your car loan, pay off your student loan. Um, but that's not the case for, for governments, um, they, you never want a government to carry no debt so long as the debt is manageable and serviceable. And um, they should be, you know, governments maintain a debt load, every country in the world, everybody owes everybody money. And that buffer is there to smooth out some of the ups and downs in, in the economy that are part of the regular sort of economic cycle, but also to address shocks like the one that we've just come through. And certainly this one is very dramatic and there's concerns that we've never added debt like this before. How do we pay for it? But interest rates have been historically low and will remain very low is the likelihood for a number of years. So the cost to service the debt is not very high. So we're not diverting that too many resources to, to um, paying for that debt. And I think the idea now is to support the economy to grow ourselves out of this. Um, our debt is going to grow over time, but so long as our economy grows over time and that share of debt doesn't, you know, shocks notwithstanding, doesn't continue to increase, we're going to be okay. Yeah. And then on the subject of, of growth, uh, you spend a lot of time in your reports talking about uh, demographics and uh, focusing on BC. I, I'm wondering where, where are we at the, at the moment when it, when it comes to, um, to, um, the demographic profile and, and when you think about immigration and obviously there was a, there was a big drop during the pandemic. Yeah. Like one of the most glaring manifestations of COVID has been on the demographic side for sure. Um, so, and it all starts at the national level. I mean, we, in some ways we closed our borders in other ways we didn't because we still had 185,000 immigrants come to Canada. Not all of them actually crossed the border into Canada. Some of them were already here as, um, uh, working as you know, as as temporary uh, workers, so here with work permits or as students converting to permanent residents. Um, but um, that one hundred eighty-five thousand 
immigrant number for 2020 was the lowest in Canada since 1998. It was about half of what the pre-pandemic target had been for the country of 341,000. So it created quite a demographic hole. And nationally, we had our, our slowest annual growth rate of uh, 0.4% since 1916. So this, this other notion, like we might be saved by, uh, like from a population growth rate perspective, by some sort of like COVID baby boom, definitely didn't happen. And I think anybody who has kids realized, yeah, you know, during COVID, we don't need another one. Yeah. Um, but um, BC was the same thing. So it was the same growth rate in, uh, in 2020 as the country at 0.4%. Um, but it was the slowest rate of growth since 1874. So it's been a long time. Um, and the response, it's just, since we saw growth of that, 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 that low magnitude, um, and that it matters. It's more than academic. Like on the one hand, uh, it, it provided a little bit of relief for the demand side of, you know, the, the new housing uh, market uh, in the sense that fewer people coming to Canada, coming to BC means that you need fewer additional homes to accommodate that growth in some senses. Um, but that's a short-term thing because long-term we have a, we have an aging population. The typical resident in Canada and in BC is a baby boomer in their late fifties. The typical age of an immigrant uh, and an interprovincial migrant, somebody moving to BC from elsewhere in Canada is around 27. So about half of the age. And the reason that we have so much immigration to Canada in the first place primarily is to support our economy and to it acknowledges our aging population um, and we are, we are trying to bolster our labor force. So the government responded to this deficit in immigration last year by raising the national immigration rates to over 400,000 for each of the next three years. So 21, 22, and 23. And I don't think we're going to get there this year for sure. Um, but what they'll do is they'll just turn the tap to the right a little bit and increase the targets for the next two years. So we're basically looking at 1.2 million immigrants over the next three years. We've never seen anything like that before. Um, and that is a direct consequence of, of COVID. Yeah. And as, as that uh, approaches, where are we at with the Metro Vancouver housing stock? Uh, condos are, are pretty hard to find at the moment, right? They are. Yeah. Which is, which is, um, you know, I was going to say funny. That's probably not the right word if uh, if you are looking for a condo. But it's um, somewhat ironic given the the um, the prognostications early on in the pandemic that the condo was dead. Um, it sort of took me back. You know, my reaction at that time was similar to you know after nine eleven when you know, in the immediate aftermath of that, the there was all kinds of commentary about you know we'll never live in high rises again. We'll never work in high rises again. And you know, obviously we moved past that. And so my feeling early in the pandemic was, you know, I know we don't want to be sharing elevators and, you know, corridors with each other and common rooms. And we don't, we just want to be around people and we need more space like that. This movement away from the condo was probably somewhat temporary. And, and if you look at downtown Vancouver, part of the value proposition of a, of a, of a condo downtown is that you are close to like, you know, uh, outdoor public areas, beaches and parks. And then you have access to all the culture that's there through restaurants and cafes and bars and clubs and, and shopping. And none of that was available. So this, it wasn't that appealing as, you know, if you're, if you're a new buyer moving into that, into that market or, or looking at it. Um, but inventory now for condos, like on the resale side is uh, down 9% versus 
versus where it was last year and down by even more versus, as I said earlier, the past 10 year average. Um, but all, you know, and on the, on the newly completed side as well, actually, um, there are fewer than 500 newly built condos that haven't already been sold. There's just not, you know, again, it, we, we go back to the supply issue. Certainly demand is very, is very robust, but we're just, we don't have that, you know, that supply response to meet it at the moment. Yeah. And on that note, how, how crucial is supply to addressing our affordability problem in Metro Vancouver? I mean, it's all about balance, right? Like the thing, you know, at a very basic level, obviously what determines prices in any market is that intersection between supply and demand. And so if one of those things is essentially remaining constant or is fairly inelastic, fairly fixed, while the other one is changing, it's that other thing that's going to you know, influence the value of, of the product in that market. So in the case of housing where supply is, you can't just, you can't just turn the tap on or off, um, you know, but um, demand can be generated through in relatively short order. You can see an increase in demand through elevated migration flows or through job growth and income growth uh, or through lower interest rates or even changes, um, even changes in um, <clears throat> borrowing regulations, things that might make it easier to borrow, uh, like, um, you know, elevated debt service ratio thresholds, which essentially would allow you to spend more of your current income on housing. Um, that can create, all of that can create more demand. And then, and the flip side is true too, where all of that can, can pull it back. And that can, some of that stuff can literally happen overnight. Um, building homes takes a long time. And also in this market, you know, again, we have this elevated, we have slack in our labor market, so to speak, right? We have an elevated unemployment rate versus where we were before the pandemic. But um, it's not that easy to get stuff done right now. And as we head back to what economists might call full employment, so this is back to a situation where we have employment or unemployment at about four and a half percent. It's just, it's really, really hard to ramp up construction and, and add to the supply side of the equation. So I think like from a policy perspective, it's really about, um, especially at a local level, and this is where I think you know municipal governments can have more of an impact than provincial or certainly federal, the federal government, um, is just ensuring that there are fewer barriers to um, development and, and construction through the approvals process, uh, the rezoning process, and that sort of thing. So you know, it's, I'm not I'm not sitting here you know wagging my finger at anyone, but it's really it's it's a it's a big challenge. Yeah, for sure. And, and then something else is that I found interesting, when you're talking about home prices in, in Vancouver, why is it so important to make equity part of the equation? Yeah, well, you know, so, you know, typically, it's rents in the rental market are driven by incomes. And um, prices in the ownership market are certainly influenced by incomes, but also driven by equity. And that's why... Um, you know, I, I always think you know, we see every once a year, there's a study about the disconnect between home values uh, and incomes. And there's definitely some valid observations and conclusions drawn from, from the data. But, you know, the equity is sort of the, uh, like for uh, physicists, there's dark matter, right? That explains things that are happening in the, in the universe. So we just can't see it. And equity is kind of that dark matter for real estate in a sense, um, in that we don't have really strong estimates of it on a micro level, like we, and we don't have real dynamic estimates of it. But um, what we did was, and we've been doing this for about 10 years now, uh, is just estimating how much 
um, equity is in the market in the entire region in homes that don't have a mortgage. Because we have census data that sheds some light on that. They ask you, do you have a, do you own your home? Yes or no? Yes. Do you have a mortgage? Yes or no? No. Okay. So it's assumed that you, you, ho- you, you own your home clear title. And so um, we estimate that based on how prices have changed since the last census and, and so on and so forth, that there's close to $400 billion in mortgage-free equity in this region. So that's, very, that's, relatively, that's a relatively liquid asset um, that can be converted to cash, can be put back into real estate in other ways. Um, and so, and, and about of that, close to $300 billion of it is held by baby boomers and older. So people age 55 uh, plus. And so, you know, we've talked, well, we haven't talked about it, but you, you hear it talked about a lot, this great intergenerational wealth transfer that's occurring now. Yeah. Um, it's hard to see it. Like it, it's happening slowly. It's sort of like the continents moving apart. We know it's happening. We can't see it. Um, and this is, this is part of the story. And there's no doubt that it's already having an impact uh, on our market, but I think it's going to continue to have an impact um, you know, for the next 10 or 20 years, as long as the baby boomers are still sort of, you know, um, in their home and, and thinking about downsizing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then as we get to the end, the, the billion dollar question, where do you think Vancouver housing prices are, are going after the pandemic and why? Well, based on the current trajectory a billion dollars for a single detached house may not be out of the question. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, you know, so I, as an economist, generally, uh, been sort of working in this industry for the past 17 years, uh, and I've been working within the Rennie Intelligence team for the past five, and uh, I've never produced a price forecast, um, simply because one, I'm not interested, but my primary goal is not to generate headlines, um, and that is what you will generate by producing, by publishing a, a price forecast, especially if you're CMHC. Um, but it's, it's so difficult to, um, to accurately predict, um, prices. So the question is, what is the utility in forecasting, um, values in that sense? And I mean, if you recall, um, early, so I think it was in May of last year in 2020. So it was a couple months into the pandemic CMHC. So, and this is a very capable, large organization with many analysts who I respect. So they're my peers. Um, and they have, they have data that we don't have, that's for sure, and models that we don't have. And they predicted a, between a 9 and an 18% drop in the average Canadian home value um, in the year ending spring of 2021. Obviously, it's been the complete opposite. <clears throat> so the question is, well, how did they get it so wrong? Well, the reality is, I mean, you can you know, you can say, oh, you, for- you, you forgot this or you didn't consider this. And but it's just you're forecasting the intersection of a multitude of demand side factors and a multitude of supply side factors. So all of that being said, um, I think what we're going to see is a uh, continued increase in prices uh, through this year. I, I, I think we're, we, it's very clear that the pricing increases currently, the current pace is unsustainable. Absolutely. Um, I think we'll see that slow. Um, the question is, how fast do we come back to full employment? So I'm looking at um, the unemployment rate. I'm looking at inflation, and I'm looking at interest rates as we turn the corner into 2022. And if those all sort of move, if inflation is moving back and, and stabilizing in the range of, you know, in the neighborhood of 2%, and unemployment, the unemployment rate is moving down towards 5%. Um, 
those are things that I think will bring balance to the market um, and will create some more stability. And, and, and I think we'll, we'll sort of level off in the, in the range of, you know, the annual two to 5% increases in home values that we typically see beginning next year, assuming we get through all of this in that time. 